From KALW in San Francisco, I'm Angie Coiro, and this is In Deep, one full hour on one intriguing topic. Our right to elect our own leaders is critical to our freedoms. It's also the key to power for those elected. So the vote has been restricted and toyed with since our country's birth. As the election presses down on us, the battles over who has access to the vote have intensified. This hour on In Deep, we're looking at barriers to the ballot box. We're also looking at solutions, because as the disenfranchised will tell you, once you lose your access to vote, it's hell to get it back. We have two guests. Professor Gilda Daniels has authored the new book, Uncounted, Voter Suppression in the United States. She served as deputy chief in the Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division voting section under the Clinton and Bush administrations. She's the director of litigation for the Advancement Projects National Office, a multiracial civil rights organization. Professor Myrna Perez is at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School. She directs its voting rights and elections program. She leads its research, advocacy, and litigation work nationwide. She also lectures at Columbia Law. I spoke to them October 1st for the Kepler's Literary Foundation. Harris County in Texas is larger than all of Rhode Island, almost 1,800 square miles. The county clerk had set up 12 locations to collect mail ballots. The Republican governor today decreed each county can only have one location for collection. The governor said this is to stop attempts at illegal voting. The Democratic Party chair says the governor is trying to stifle the vote to prevent the Republicans from losing. I'm going to start with you, Mirna. Can you put this in the context of the other cases that you've dealt with? Um, yes. Uh, I've, maybe some people know I am from the great state of Texas, and uh, I certainly know a bunch of hogwash when I hear it. And the argument that there are too many drop boxes in Texas is certainly up there. But what I think is really, really important to remember about Texas is that this is in a context that is anti-voter. It is not easy to participate and vote in Texas. Let's say that you are not registered to vote. Well, Texas doesn't have online registration. Okay. In other states, a community member could come in and register you. Not in Texas. You have to be a deputy registrar, which means you have to get permission from some petty bureaucrat to go to another voter and say, I care about my country. I care about voting. Do you too? Will you fill this form out? Let's say you make it through that hurdle. You might get purged because Texas has a very high purge rate and they uh, have attempted a lot of erroneous purges ranging from uh, presumed people that uh, people that were presumed to have died to people that they thought were non-citizens. Let's say you get through those hurdles. You're not sure where you can vote because they've been cutting mobile voting units. Let's say you figure out where you're supposed to vote. You get there. They enacted what at one point was the strictest photo ID law in the country. And that has gotten beaten back. We were one of the lawyers that did that. But it's still harder than it was 10 years ago to vote. Let's say you get through those hurdles. What can happen to you then if you'd made a mistake? You could get thrown in jail and prosecuted the way that Rosa Ortega or Crystal Mason did because they made a mistake and registered when they were ineligible. And that's not even talking about the vote by mail system. Texas is one of the very few states that are left in this country that is not letting anybody who wants to vote by mail during a once in a century pandemic be able to exercise this option. They still place limits on it. Harris County is being sued by the attorney general because they were sending out mail ballot applications to everybody. Texas does not allow you 
to apply online for a mail ballot. And now Texas is saying you've got one place in the entire county. And I can tell you being from Texas, Texas is big. It is very, very probable that your one county uh, drop box is going to be really far and inconvenient from where you live. And the big question to ask is why? The election system is not made more secure. Texas does not have a history of fraud. It has to be, I think. I think there is no other explanation that there's some anxiety over demographic changes. There's some anxiety over the browning of Texas and that some people are worried that they're not going to have a job security plan because we have these things called elections. So um, this is not only embarrassing being from Texas, it's really, really outrageous. And it's also part of a national context where you are seeing other political operatives go after drop boxes. Like we're seeing it happen in Pennsylvania or involved in the lawsuit there. That's something I want to take over to Gilda because Gilda, you've got a whole chapter on voter suppression. <laughs> I'm sure you can tell us that um, Texas is not an outlier. Absolutely not. And uh, Texas is actually the suppressor in chief. Right? <laughs> you, can, you can look to Texas to figure out what's coming next in other parts of the country. In this instance, you have the governor of the state saying to the counties that you will only have one drop box. It's, it's outrageous. And doing so um, in, in a little more than 30 days before the election. It's also why, you know, not having Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act is so uh, devastating because they would have never been allowed to do this if we didn't have uh, Shelby County versus Holder, a decision that essentially gutted the requirement or eliminated the requirement that states get approval before they can make these kinds of changes. And it would it would have never allowed the state of Texas to make this kind of change, at, and, and particularly at this time in the election cycle, with a, with a little more than 30 days before uh, the election. But te- Texas certainly uh, c- continues to be a, a place that we can look to to determine what is going to happen next. Myrna mentioned voter ID, and there and certainly the cases that, that took place. Uh, to push that back. But the voter ID that Greg Abbott <laughs> uh, pushed, um, certainly when he was uh, attorney general of Texas, ensured that there were more than 600,000 black and brown people who did not have the type of ID that Greg Abbott said was necessary. And they also pushed this voter ID law because they said, you know, they wanted to prevent voter fraud. The same rationale that they're uh, giving for this, this drop box rule. Uh, so, um, you know, one of the things in my book, I use my uh, nearly 100-year-old grandmother as a kind of timeline for this various uh, measures of voter suppression. And one of the things my grandmother would say to me is the devil ain't got no new tricks. And so certainly uh, there, there are no new tricks that these uh, voter suppressors are utilizing and certainly uh, trying to do them, uh, they're in a frenzy, certainly, to, to try to implement them to stop people from exercising their right to vote. And that's why organizations like Advancement Project and Brennan Center for Justice and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and other organizations are having to you know, wage, certainly, certainly continue the battles um, to, to win this war uh, in this fight to vote for the right to vote.
You know, I was surprised to find out, I, I really tried to drill, drill down because I wanted to be fair-handed. I wanted to find cases of the Democratic Party masterminding these attempts to stymie the vote. The only thing I found with the Democratic Party's name attached to it was an article at 538.com saying that the Dems pressing for local elections to be held in off years was a successful voter suppression measure. In the interest of fairness, fair not, do both sides really do it? Look, I mean, I'm a nonpartisan organization, and I think that you, you, it's, it's hard to kind of blame people. Um, I, I think you look at party operatives and things like that. I do think it is very, very clear that uh, right now at this point in history, I think it is indisputable that all of the anti-voter lawsuits at least are being um, waged by one particular political party. Like the, and I also think that as Americans, we have the right to be able to elect whatever political party we want, but both political parties should be respecting that Americans want a free, fair, and accessible election. Um, I think we're having a big distortion because we have some politicians with some very big megaphones um, talking irresponsibly and spreading misinformation and disinformation that is not just going to hurt people on the other political party, it's going to hurt them, uh, it's going to hurt members of their own party, too, because our democracy works best when all of us are participating. And mm -hmm. democracy is bedraggled and cheapened when you have politicians try and treat our right to vote as a political football or as a job security plan. To be in a position where Americans are able to cast a free, fair, and accessible vote, where we are the ones picking our politicians, and where the rules of the game aren't being manipulated so that some of us can participate and some people can't. Let me take the same question over to Gilda because you're not a nonprofit organization nor nonpartisan. Great. Well, I can well I can I can uh, take off my litigation director hat and I can be Gilda Daniels law professor, Gilda Daniels author. And yes, it has certainly been primarily the Republicans who are passing these laws that are making it harder for people to vote. Now, the only other only area where I can see where it's either party would probably be in redistricting. Mm -hmm. uh, where certainly, uh, you know, elected officials are, is, are trying to maintain their power so they draw lines that will empower their particular party. But it's important to note that, you know, voting is about power. And those in power are not, <laughs> do not easily give that up and don't easily give it away. And I think particularly when they are in a situation where they are of the belief that certain groups uh, and certain people are not inclined to vote for them, and they see ways in which they can um, dissuade, impede, prevent, deter uh, those groups from casting ballots, and they have the power to do so, uh, then, they, then they exercise that power in order to maintain their positions. Uh, and it's deplorable, <laughs> and it, but it's not new. That's the other thing. It's not new. We have a historically, we have certainly seen how, uh, you know, these laws of put in place to prevent certain people from voting. Poll taxes, grandfather clause, uh, the grandfather clause, literacy tests were all measures uh, that were utilized uh, to prevent black and brown people from voting, uh, from casting ballots. And it was very effective. It came about after you had you know, massive numbers of enfranchisement of, of people of color, certainly after the passage of the C uh, Civil War Amendments, the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments. Uh, and then seeing that, white segregationists, white supremacists said enough is enough and drafted laws that eliminated 
um, uh, black voting power, particularly in the South. And I think it's, it's a different time, but I think we're seeing the same kinds of things eliminating drop boxes where you can where you can actually cast you can you can have a ballot but then figuring where do you where do you actually drop the ballot off right it's like so the same kinds of uh, measures they have different names but certainly the impact and the effect is the same and that is uh, to prevent people and certainly in their minds and in, in uh, people who who are not inclined to vote for them, and for uh, for them, that is primarily people in the Democratic Party, which in some places equates to black and brown people, uh, where they use certainly use a party as a proxy for race in preventing them from uh, uh, casting ballots. And let's not forget, in Texas, they had the white primaries, and those were going to be the cases, and those were those were Democratic. So I, I think I think it's clear that at this point in time. Um, the anti-voter actions are, uh, at least in the litigation context, perpetrated by one particular party. But I, I do think as Americans, we should just be vigilant about our right to vote, uh, irrespective of which party we belong to. Absolutely. We got a number of people who are asking about um, whether the Texas law can be reversed in time for the elections. I'll let either of you take that one. <laughs> well, we uh, the, the law that is being... The lawsuit that was filed to try and stop Harris County from sending mail ballot applications is before the Texas Supreme Court. Um, We're awaiting a decision on that. Uh, The thing just happened in Texas, so uh, with respect to the drop boxes, so stay tuned. Um, There are lawsuits like this all over the country, including one in Ohio. So uh, I I do think that folks are looking at options. Um, But one of the things that I would urge all of your listeners to consider is whether or not it makes sense at this point in our country's history to be expecting the courts to save us. I am worried that, especially among us that are like litigators, that that we are not building the muscles we need in order to constantly be winning the public argument that our elections should be free, fair, and accessible. I think we need to be in the business of making sure that people are invested in our democracy and they're invested in the idea of elections as a way of resolving political differences peacefully. Because um, if we don't continue to have that conversation, if we don't continue to make sure that we are winning that argument, and that is an idea that Americans uh, cherish and believe and are willing to stand by, then the courts are going to follow, right? So like, we, we need to just make sure that we are not getting complacent about making the public argument um, and hoping that the courts are going to rescue us. Well, Gilda, there's something underlying that question. I I was shocked in your book to see a quote from Lonnie Guineer, academic Lonnie Guineer, who said there's no explicit fundamental constitutional right to vote. I mean, that's a real shocker. Right. So we, and, and, and we learned that in, in 2000, right, in the Bush v. Gore opinion, where the Supreme Court essentially said that voters don't have the ability to elect the president, that it's the electoral college. And there is a movement um, for an explicit, to have an explicit right to vote in the United States Constitution. Senator Dick Durbin actually has a joint resolution that actually has, that includes an explicit right to vote. Uh, And so there's certainly a a movement uh, to to have that right, because we have a a bunch of have nots, right, in the the Constitution in regards to the, or do nots in regards to the uh, uh, right to vote, right, that you uh, cannot uh, discriminate based on race or sex or age. 
But unlike, you know, other fundamental rights, like where you have the right to bear arms, we don't have anything in the Constitution that says you have the right to vote. Uh, and so certainly it would help move us towards universal suffrage. And, you know, I argue that that's also a, a way uh, that hopefully we can eliminate some of these variances that we see from state to state and county county that would certainly hopefully make it harder for um, uh, harder for jurisdictions to uh, pass these kinds of laws that would impede the right to vote. And, and it's, you know, there's certainly there's certainly uh, uh, detractors to the to that argument. They don't there, there are certainly scholars who don't believe that you get anything more uh, with a with an explicit right to vote. But yeah, I, I certainly think that I certainly think that that uh, could be helpful in helping us address these uh, issues. Can I also want to make a uh, want to say something in regards to what Myrna said in regards to uh, our over reliance on the courts? We're also seeing where this where the court is saying don't come to us, like in regards to uh, partisan gerrymandering. Right where the Supreme Court says it's not an issue for us, and essentially you're, you're, we'll have to rely on the state courts if we want to take the court. It's one of the things I've said in the past is that the revolution will not be litigated. Litigation is a tool, um, but we, ha- we are going to have to use all the tools in our arsenal in order to ensure that we can uh, win this fight, such as using the media and, and, and trying to sway or influence uh, public opinion is going to be very important as well as changing policy we've seen in Florida where the people passed the ballot initiative, got the initiative on the ballot, 64% of Floridians passed uh, the initiative that would have restored the right to vote to uh, you know almost a million people. And then you saw the legislature come in and say, oh, no, you know, the subtitle in my book, Free at Last, Not So Fast. Now you have to pay fines, fees, and restitution in order for you to get your right to vote. Gilda Daniels and Myrna Perez. We're coming right back with more about that Florida case. This is In Deep. Some truth. 
I'm Angie Coiro. This is In Deep. Myrna Perez is with the Brennan Center for Justice and lectures at Columbia Law. Gilda Daniels is with the Advancement Project and teaches at the University of Baltimore School of Law. We're talking about protecting the vote, picking up here on the Florida case just mentioned. Myrna, I want to go to you for the exact same case that Gilda was just alluding to, where the felons who were given the vote who were allowed, had their voting restored, now they have to pay all these fees before they vote. And Michael Bloomberg showed up and gave, if I recall correctly, $16 million to a nonprofit that helps felon to get felons to pay off their fees and get re-engaged with the vote. Someone who shall be nameless, who lives in the same house as me, saw that as voting interference. He said, yeah, look, they're supposed to pay their fees. That's part of their sentence. You know, why would you allow someone to come in, especially when he said explicitly that he expects them to vote Democratic? What's the legal side of that? Okay, well, so I think first of all is these are folks that have completed their probation, their parole. They're not felons anymore, right? They're people who have served their time. They're people who want to get back into our community. They're people that the criminal justice system has decided are safe to be living and working amongst us. And one of the things that I found, like, I found so distressing about the decision is that um, even the court nominalized mm-hmm. these uh, aspiring voters. These are folks who, you know, they weren't the plaintiffs, they weren't appellees, they weren't aspiring voters. And so I do think that language matters um, because I, I don't think we should be nominalizing people for uh, the worst thing that they ever did. Um, especially after the criminal justice system has said that they are safe to be living and working amongst us. Um, What I will say uh, is that uh, people are differently situated financially. We work a lot, both Gilda's organization and mine work a lot with uh, the group that has been uh, trying to connect people who have outstanding fees and fines and offering to help them pay them off. I am not going to be vouching for their practices because I don't know them, but they've been, I don't know those practices, but I know this group is scrupulously nonpartisan. And I would be stunned to learn that they were privileging how people were registering. I think that that's just not going to be a fact that's, my bet is that's not going to be a fact that's going to come out. And offering a way for people to get back into the voting system, anyone is going to be very hard pressed to prove is improper. Um, some people have the money because they inherited it. Some people have the money because they hid it before they went to prison. Some people have the money because they're they married someone that was wealthy. Um, to be able to say that this form of having the money to pay off is illegitimate and that one is, is just going to be a very it's going to be a very tough legal argument. For folks to make. What I do think is really gross about the whole thing is that first, the state was arguing that this wasn't a poll tax; it was it was a it was a fee. And now that uh, someone is offering to pay off the fees, they're trying to prohibit that. I think it's just a tax on being poor. Like they're they're conditioning the right to vote on your wealth and your status about it, and whether or not you have income that allows you to. Uh, both pay off any outstanding fees or fines that you have, um, and also that you're lucky enough to have a criminal history where what you owe is actually obvious. Um, You know, we represent a pastor in the case, and 
we obviously presented as best we could the fact that it is impossible to find out how much this person owes. Their county tried to work with us and like testified in court, we do not know how much this person owes. You know, so you, in addition to having a bunch of really smart lawyers, you had the people who are supposed to be in the business of determining eligibility, not being able to say that they could conclusively say what my client owes. So I, it's a it's a bankrupt system. It was super disappointing. I hope Floridians remember all of the people that undermined their will at the when they voted in uh, you know at sixty four percent that they wanted to end permanent disenfranchisement. I hope that those voters remember the politicians that are trying to undermine that and trying to statutorily prohibit the very same act that they tried to create through uh, a constitutional amendment. Gil, do you want to get in on that? I just want to say the person who remains nameless, who lives in your house, who's outraged about <laughs> the source very of tough, funding. Very loved. <laughs> I'm sure he is. He or she is, I'm sure. Source of the source of funding. Uh, they're, they're concerned about the source of funding. Then, you know, I want them to be just as outraged that people have to pay money before they can register to vote. Right. And I think that, I mean, that is our, and the, and the system that they've, that, that, that has, that, that has been created to ensure that they can't find, even find out how much money um, they owe in order to pay those fines and fees. And I think it's, it's important to note, understand that this is a system of suppression, right? And this system that prevents people from participating. And certainly the felon disenfranchised system in Florida is, is one that does that. And we, you know, we work with uh, uh, returning citizens um, uh, throughout the country. And certainly one of the things that we're finding is that, you know, it's, it's one thing to get your, your rights restored, and then it's the implementation that's the problem. We're certainly seeing that in Florida, and we're seeing that in Louisiana, where you have a law that, that, that expands uh, the right to vote or provides the right to vote to returning citizens, but it's the process for being able to uh, realize that, right? So it's a different fight and it's, a, it's, a, and it's fighting against uh, the system that has been created and certainly uh, uh, and, and maintained for centuries, uh, particularly in regards to felon disenfranchisement that uh, we're fighting against. And I think, you know, you know, we're talking about people who have paid their debt to society and they are contributing citizens <laughs> to our country. Uh, and so certainly these measures that are put in place are put in place for for one reason, and that is to prevent them from voting. And, and particularly the folk who are fighting against it think that these are people who would not necessarily vote for them. <laughs> and uh, and we, you know, I think we need to keep that in mind and continue to fight to fight against that. I love this question from Corey because it goes to something that's right in the headlines. Corey asks, can the Republicans go to court after the election and allege that the votes in a state currently controlled by Republicans were fraudulent, therefore the electors in that state can vote for the candidate they think their people would have wanted? And this is something that we're hearing from Donald Trump, i.e. the popular vote went for Biden, but without fraud, the people would have voted for Trump. So the electors cast their vote for Trump. Asking about the separation of the electors from the popular vote. Who wants to dive in on that one? Electoral College. Marina, don't you want to talk about that? 
Funny, look, so one of the things I will tell the, the listeners is I think that, that one can really get one's, oneself worked up about the doom spiral, about all the ways in which the elections can go wrong. I think we're going to have a lot of problems on election day, but I also, um, and maybe it's because I'm a civil rights lawyer and I engage in the magical thinking that if we work long enough and hard enough, we can bend the moral arc of the universe closer to justice. Like, um, I think that uh, if we all get out, we all vote, we speak in one direction, we let our politicians know that we care about our right to vote, we look out for each other, we plan ahead, we be prepared. Um, I think I think it's gonna, I think that the hot spots are gonna be narrower. And I and what I what I am worried about, what I'm really worried about from a more abstract, transcendent way, is that we're spending so much time fretting about the ways in which things can go wrong that we're not actually thinking about what is it that we can be doing to help ensure that it goes right. And I don't want people staying away from the polls. I don't want people being deterred from voting because they think that there's gonna be some sort of disaster that makes it their vote uh, not matter. I think the people trying to create all this chaos and trying to sow all this fear want that to happen. They want us to think, that we're not going to prevail. They want us to think that our vote doesn't matter. They want us to think that we're powerless. And I want to prove them all wrong. Um, to answer that specific question, um, all of these plans about the people ignoring the, you know, what state laws are regarding how electors can vote, um, assume that folks are not worried about their accountability, right? They assume that there's no political checks on them. They can. They assume that there's not gonna be putting pressure on them to uh, either comply with state law or to go with what the state decision was or state norm was. And it's not outside the realm of possibility that, uh, that there may be some defectors in that way. But I think for the most part, the strong voice of the people matters a lot. It matters a whole lot. Um, and that the stronger and the clearer that voters speak, the harder it is for operatives to try and seek refuge in, in the gray area. So I think if we're worried about these things, we need to make sure that we turn out. We turn out. We turn out and we speak clearly that we care about our country, we care about our democracy, and that we vote. And I just think that the point is that if it's if it's not close, it doesn't matter, right? If we're talking about if we're talking about a close election, then you know you would make it into these kind of doomsday uh, scenarios. But if it's if it's not a close election, those lawsuits are just a waste of time and a waste of uh, a waste of money. And you know, most and uh, you know these kinds of lawsuits aren't even contemplated unless it's close. So again, I say folk turn out, participate. Uh, and uh, vote in large numbers, uh, and it's a clear choice, uh, then that makes uh, it, it even uh, more difficult for these kinds of det electoral detractors to, to, to occur. Well, I want to put together a question from Patrick with something that's in your book, Gilda. Uh, Patrick says, can the guests comment on the suggestions by Trump to act, to watch the polls? And Gilda, I'm going to put that side by side with something in your book. You said the statements, tweets, and so on from Donald Trump are meant to deceive, threaten, and deter citizens from participating in the process. How does what he says add up to suppression? And what do we do when he says, hey, go watch the polls? Right. If, I, if So it's interesting because with, with someone who will remain nameless who lives in my house, <laughs> 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 I 
every time every time there's a tweet, he's like, "Did you see this? Um, did you did you hear this?" And I'm just like, "If I if I responded to every tweet on, you know, whatever visions of sugar plums are dancing in his head, then you know, I would I, I wouldn't sleep. I wouldn't sleep." Um, so you know, I think in regards to the the way that he has used the presidency and the position, not only him, but elected officials, the way that they've given misinformation, uh, disinformation, and it, 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 it is voter deception. And, mm-hmm. and he is actually trending toward, it, it, he has actually not only trended towards, he is in the middle of voter intimidation, right? Trying to uh, intimidate voters with, with trying to weaponize the right to vote and telling folk to watch uh, the polls and certainly his statements in the in the debate uh, on Tuesday uh, in regards to you know these militarized groups. Um, so having uh, those uh, kinds of statements are uh, troubling, and and we currently don't have a system that penalizes elected officials uh, for this kind of voter uh, voter deception. We do have laws on uh, voter intimidation. But in the Voting Rights Act, there's Section 11B that allows the federal government to bring uh, voter intimidation um, charges. Uh, if, but in other, otherwise, those charges would have to come uh, on the state level. Um, but it's certainly um, troubling. And, and, and the, the way that we can combat this issue is by having events like this and ensuring that uh, folk have accurate information um, um, and that they're relying on trusted sources for that information, right? And so things, you know, such learning, you know, what are the various ways that you can uh, register? Where can you vote? Going to, you know, register uh, your election, Department of Elections website, your Secretary of State website, going to various websites for advocacy groups like Brennan Center, Lawyers Committee, um, or places where you can find accurate information. Uh, vote.org is another place uh, where that has information on how to register, where to vote, those kinds of uh, entities. So, I mean, the only way to, to combat the lie is with truth and knowing where uh, you can find um, uh, truth and accuracy is going to be very important, certainly as we move towards um, this election. Marilyn, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about what's happening with the post office. Postmaster General uh, Louis DeJoy, who's a top GOP fundraiser, got put in his position by Donald Trump, and he issued orders for sorting machines to be destroyed, mailboxes picked up and removed. It was encouraging to read that there's a little quiet revolt going on with the USPS employees. They're staying late and they're, they're picking medicines and ballots out of the mail that is stalled and making sure it gets there on time. But in Michigan, there was actually a supervisor's directive to leave the election mail behind. Tell me the legal status of this mess that we're in with the post office. The challenge with the post office is one of the reasons that so many nonprofits, including Gildas and Mines, have been saying we need to also protect our polling places. So every eligible American, we believe, should have access to a mail ballot, especially in a once in a century pandemic. But we need to diversify risks. We need to not put all of our voting eggs in one voting basket. Like we need to make sure 
communities uh, feel confident when voting. And for all of the reasons that you have said, some people are going to feel more comfortable voting in person. The way that we need to do that is by making sure that we have ample polling places designed in a way to keep people safe, that there are enough of them and enough hours to make sure that there doesn't have to be any congestion, and that those that feel comfortable voting by mail end up voting by mail. The problem with the post office is that it's not just elections. As you mentioned, people rely on the post office for a lot of important needs, and the communities that rely the most on the post office are going to be the ones that are ones that have been traditionally disenfranchised uh, and traditionally marginalized in our society. So that's something we need to fix independent of how we vote in our election. But I think the politicization of the post office and the way that the politicians have kind of taken their street fight to this other segment of our country is just proof that voters need options when voting on election day. And we need to have many different ways in which people can participate. And I, I agree wholeheartedly, if I can just say this real quickly. You know, I was a deputy chief in the Civil Rights Division voting section and certainly was a, was a staff attorney prior to that. And so one of the things I think we have to remember, certainly with the uh, U.S. Postal Service, is we're talking about civil servants. And these folk work hard every day, uh, rain, sleet, or snow, right, to ensure that we get our mail. And so it's, it, I, think it's, I think it's important that we support them as they work around these uh, landmines, certainly that these political appointees uh, have put in place, as well as, you know, to just remind folks that if they have concerns about using the Postal Service, that in many places, apparently not in Texas, you have drop boxes that you can place your uh, ballot in and use that as an option. And also you can, uh, in most places, drop off your ballot at the uh, registrar of voters, or like in Florida, it's the supervisor of elections. This is In Deep with Gilda Daniels and Myrna Perez, coming back in just two minutes. My guests are mentioning a number of activists and nonprofit organizations. I will list them all at the end of the show. Stay for more. I'm Angie Coiro.
It's In Deep. I'm Angie Coiro. We're getting right back to questions from Myrna Perez and Gilda Daniels. I'm really pleased with our viewers are so focused on trying to get everything fixed here. As they should be, as they should be. That is the single most productive. Like this is a block and tackle. This is not a standing on the sidelines being nervous about what the outcome is. Like there are so many things that all of us can do to um, at least help the situation. And I hope at some point soon, we'll start talking about that. (laughs) Well, let's get to it. Amber wants to know about the fees and restitutions issue in Florida and where can we direct funds to pay the fees? Well, again, uh, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition uh, is an organization that was the leaders behind Amendment 4. They are the ones that are getting many of the donations to try and pay people off. Desmond Mead, their head, uh, was one of Time's 100 Most Influential People. Um, And unfortunately, his clemency very recently was denied again. So he's one of Time's Most Influential People. And the state of Florida has still not granted him clemency. So that, that's somewhere somebody should be thinking about if that's, if that's what their heart calls them to. Mary Luke has a question about, as Californians, with 32 days left before the election, what are the tangible things that we can do to reverse voter suppression? And if I may piggyback onto that myself, a lot of Californians feel very safe in this particular state. So is there anything we can do? as outreach to other states that aren't as secure, that have more trouble registering to vote and getting a ballot? Well, I've got to hand it to California. California has been making a lot of really impressive strides in the last, uh, you know, the last few weeks, uh, protecting the ratio of polling places when a lot of states were cutting back a lot more, um, changing the standard for provisional ballots, which means that if you end up having to vote provisionally, uh, your vote is going to count unless there's an affirmative uh, establishment that you are ineligible. Notice and cure is going to be given to people who file provisional ballots. So um, go Californians for pushing hard and for telling your election officials that you want you want elections. Um, they're so likely to be some hiccups. I mean, people always are going to have a hard time getting to the polls. You know somebody that's going to have trouble. Um, There's so much changes and life is really hard right now. Everybody knows somebody that would benefit from a reminder about the upcoming deadlines, right? Last day to mail your ballot in. When does it have to get there by? You know, when can you start voting? Where can you start voting? There's so much disinformation and misinformation on top of changes and disruption that, uh, you know, that if you know your facts and you know what you're doing, help your neighbor out. Like, see, save them the trouble of having to look something up or having to make a phone call. Um, we're also telling people, like, think about what your plan is for voting on election day. Are you going to vote by mail? Are you going to vote in person? Do you have any flexibility? If you're an employer, can you be understanding of your employees if they need to spend longer in line because they were having trouble at, at the polls? Can you babysit somebody else's kids oh. that, uh, that had to have uh, that had a problem at the polls and needed to work something out? If you don't have, if your employer is more flexible and you can see see or hear somebody in line with you stressed out because they have to get back quickly, can you let them have your spot? Like, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that Americans are going to have to step into the breach because we've had so many politicians messing this up. But I think we can do it, and I think if we have each other's back, it's going to go a lot smoother. Gilda, what about a national? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I encourage everyone to do four things. Educate, legislate, litigate, participate. 
So educate, as Rona was saying, educate yourselves about the process. When can you vote? How do you vote? What are the deadlines, et, et, et cetera. And also not educate, not only educating yourselves, but educating others, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, and reminding them about uh, deadlines and how, and, and how, to, how to register. Uh, and then legislate, being aware of voting rights uh, and election uh, legislation. Uh, and on the state, uh, local, state, and federal level, right? There are a number of, of pieces of legislation that's been on Mitch McConnell's desk in some instances more than 200 days that affect uh, the, the right to vote and could make it easier. I think, you know, calling, calling Mitch McConnell, calling the United States Senate is, uh, going, is, is very important. And then also being aware of those kinds of laws that happen on the state level. And then when litigation is necessary partnering with organizations like Brennan Center, like Advancement Project National Office, like, you know, NAACP, LDF, DEMOS, uh, Latino Justice Pearl Deaf, Mall Deaf, right? There are a number of uh, civil rights organizations that litigate these voting rights uh, cases uh, that certainly need, uh, need your help and support. Um, because there, there are more, I think, I think uh, uh, Professor Justin Levitt actually keeps a running total. That at one point, there were more than 200 COVID-related voting cases in the country, right? And, and those, um, you know, cases, organizations like ours are the ones that are uh, working on, on those cases. Finally, I ask everyone to participate. Sign up to become a poll worker. Uh, we need poll workers because in this, in this era of covid uh, elderly persons who would uh, usually serve as poll workers don't want to subject themselves to the possibility of, of catching the virus. And so many of them are, are not serving as poll workers during this election. So there's a need for poll workers. And uh, you can also you know, uh, sign up to do some election protection work and working with organizations uh, that uh, also protect the vote on uh, election day. 1866 our vote uh, with election protection then the NAACP other organizations would welcome your uh, assistance not only on election day and during this election cycle but certainly throughout the year uh gilda's book has a whole section about potential fixes for our situations and compulsory vote is one of the ideas that's floating out there that you could lose your voting right and gilda let me know if i'm misquoting you you could you have to basically do the voting to retain your right to vote. You need to show up and participate to keep your right to vote. Mirna, what's the, uh, what's the legal side of that? I'm not sure, I, are, you, um, are you talking about like use it or lose it? Like, what are you talking about, Gilda? I'm not yeah, even sure. So for example, uh, with the uh, uh, voter uh, purges. Okay, and, okay, so you're talking about the purge laws. Okay, so. So they're uh, under federal law, uh, election administrators are supposed to exercise reasonable efforts to try and keep their uh, roles clean. There is a small minority of states that uh, use as one of the ways in which they keep the roles clean, uh, looking at who's voted recently. And if you miss a certain number of elections then they presume that you've moved, um, and they send you a notice and they tell you if you don't respond in two federal elections, um, you're gonna be purged. And so that is sometimes called a use it or lose it policy. Um, unfortunately, the Supreme Court has said that that's lawful. Mm -hmm. The fortunate part is that 
very few states do it because it's not actually a very good indicator of who's moved, but it's more an indicator of how excited people were about the candidates that were running and whether or not somebody tried to engage them. Um, but I, I think uh, the moral of the story is that we need to um, encourage people to vote even when they're not super excited because I think um, voting begets voting. Like they, they, there's these really interesting statistics that say that if you can take a voter that doesn't participate very often, we call them a low propensity voter, and you can get them to vote like three times in a row, they become a high propensity voter. It's like a habit, it's a muscle. Like there are a lot of things we do um, because it's good for us and because it's, it's good to have that habit. And when you think about it, voting is not really for you, it's for your community, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a very pro-social act. And so I think it would be really a good thing if most of us thought about voting as a way of stewardship. Like we have a country, we have a community, we need to set the direction of it. Our country works better when it hears from all of us. Um, it needs to leverage our experience and our expertise um, and our judgment, and it can't do that if we're sitting on the sidelines. Gilda, what about the idea of a national day of voting, a day off where everybody gets to vote? Well, there are, uh, I think that's, that's certainly one of the provisions in some of the congressional legislation, such as making it a national holiday. Uh, I think we need to do all those things. I think we need to have a national holiday. I think we need to have, we need to expand early voting. Uh, we need to make uh, vote by mail more accessible and available uh, to people. I think I think having a national holiday is just one of many things that we need to do to ensure that people have opportunities uh, to actually cast a ballot. So I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of certainly having a national holiday as, as well as doing all of these other things. Um, I was going to say, Gilda, I think it's so great that you're talking about the other things, because I think what some people don't remember when they're talking about the national holiday in isolation is who doesn't get off on national holidays? People have domestic uh, uh, workers. Basically, if you don't work in an office or a traditional office, you don't get off, right? Yeah. So voter suppression doesn't happen with one fell swoop. It's a bunch of different interventions. Mm -hmm. um, Full enfranchisement is not going to happen with one reform. We need a bunch of different reforms because our communities are different. We have different needs. We have different barriers. Um, we're starting from different places. Um, and so we need to be thinking about all of the different ways in which we can bring people into the system and not just assume that one way is going to work because it works for us. Like, I can't tell you, I spent the first probably three months of the pandemic trying to explain to white progressives why vote by mail was not going to save us. Right. And these were folks that did not understand that there were some communities that did not get reliable mail service. Mm -hmm. You live on a Native American reservation, the way your tribe understands your address might look very, very different than the way the post office understands. Right. If or you're in a building or in a very rural area, you're not likely to get the same kind of uh, mail service than if you vote, uh, you know, in the suburbs. And I think it's really hard for people to step outside of their own bubble and imagine how someone else lives. I mean, I think that's why we have photo ID laws, because I think people are like, oh, I have an ID. So it must be true for everyone. Well, most Americans do have the kind of photo ID that is required. Between 88 and 90 percent of Americans have the kind of ID. But we're not a democracy for most of us. We're a democracy for all of us. And that means we need to, to undertake the reforms that are going to bring all of us in. 
I want to throw out some ideas that are coming in from our viewers. And Lucy says the black churches have been highly effective with their souls to the polls program. Is there an effort to implement such programs to escort voters to the ballot drop boxes? And of course, this is going to be more important than ever in Texas, but I wonder how much the churches are involved. Yeah, certainly. I think the, the, the pandemic has certainly impacted the uh, social activism in churches, right? Because I live in Maryland and we still, my church is still not meeting, right? Um, so we're, you know, and so souls to the polls and certainly having to get out, uh, get out to, to vote, uh, get out the vote effort is going to be impactful. But also, but I think we also, you think about voter registration, right? We, we're running up against voter registration deadlines and then certainly third party voter registration uh, in the country essentially came to a halt uh, over certainly in you know uh, March, April, April, May, and June and July uh, with the Advancement Project, we brought a lawsuit in Florida, COVID nineteen related, and so in that lawsuit we had our depositions with uh, some of the supervisors of elections that said that in this we had our depositions in July. Some of them said they had absolutely zero, they had zero persons registered over like a three month time period because right, DM, the Department of Motor Vehicles was shut down. Um, the offices were closed. Um, you could, you know, and, and, and the online voter registration um, platform was faulty, right? So, you know, voter registration is also a, an area where churches were certainly vital to that process. Um, so we still have time before we can get the souls to the polls. In some places, you know, like in Virginia, Virginia has like 45 days of uh, early voting. Some there are certainly a number of places that have not yet started early voting and that and certainly still have time to register to vote. If we can get churches and third party organizations in a position where they can actually do voter registration, that would be helpful as well as uh, getting uh, churches to enlist folk and use church buses for uh, souls to the polls efforts. I've got a question for both of you to finish up. One of the most confounding elements in tackling our problems is that everybody wants their own facts. I actually got into an online discussion with someone where I brought in the data, I brought in the citations on how much voter impersonation and illegitimate voting there actually was, which is minuscule. It's not even a full percentage point. And it was dismissed with, well, my gut tells me there's more than that. And they wanted to predicate laws on their gut. And I, you're both in education to a certain extent and trying to talk to voters. How do you talk to voters who want to introduce their own facts? In other words, how do you make a persuasive, factual case? Marina, do you want to start on that one? Yeah, well, there's actually data in terms of how you persuade people. And that's with people, not with numbers, right? Like they need to meet people. They need to resonate with folks. Um, and they need to be able to see uh, themselves or glimmers of themselves in other people and can imagine that they could be in that predicament. Um, voter fraud in particular is one of these really sticky research issues where we figured out a while ago that there's some people just that have a very hard time moving um, no matter how much data you give to them. And, and it is one of these like instinctual things. So I think the best thing to do is to remind them of, of stories and then figure out how to find something else that's productive and constructive that they're willing to do and move them on that area. I mean, I think um, we let fraud take on, take up too much oxygen in this space anyway. Um, and every time it's raised, it's somebody else we're not registering or somebody else we're not engaging. 
I got about 40 seconds for you, Gilda. I'll say that I would send them to uh, Rigged, the voter suppression playbook, um, which is Jeffrey Wright is the narrator for that uh, movie documentary. Um, and it chronicles, uh, uh, chronicles uh, the efforts of voter suppression efforts. And also, I, you know, I just wouldn't spend a lot of time, Angie, on folk who refuse to see what the data shows or just have just decided that, that it exists and, it, and even if it only exists in their heads. And so I think we have a lot of work to do and I just don't have, I do, don't, do not have the time to, to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to convince somebody that voter fraud does not exist when voter suppression is a much bigger issue and one that I think we need to spend our time working to eliminate instead of trying to sh show people that voter fraud is, is not an issue. And because there, there is data and that they can either they can either believe it and receive it or not. But if they I would send them to the, the rigged movie uh, and see if that might persuade them. Well, we couldn't have had a better panel tonight. Thank you so much, both Thank of you for having us. Gilda Daniels and Myrna Perez. I spoke with them on October 1st for the Kepler's Literary Foundation. Professor Myrna Perez is at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School, directing its voting rights and elections program. She leads its research, advocacy, and litigation work nationwide. She also lectures at Columbia Law. Professor Gilda Daniels' new book is Uncounted, Voter Suppression in the United States. She's the director of litigation for Advancement Project's national office. She served as deputy chief in the Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division, Voting Section under the Clinton and Bush administrations. As promised, here's a list of the organizations mentioned this hour. Contact any of them if you'd like to help keep the right to vote in the hands of all Americans. The NAACP and the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. The Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, or FRRC. Contact Vote.org for information on how to register and where to vote. Vote.org. Demos.org, powering the movement for a just, inclusive, multiracial democracy. Latino Justice at LatinoJustice.org. MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Finally, Election Protection. If you see or have any problem with voting, 1-866-OUR-VOTE. That's 866-OUR-VOTE. We'd love to hear from you about our shows. Send your comments, questions, and suggestions to info at indeepradio.com. That's info at indeepradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at indeepradio. At KALW, our board operator announcer is Damian Miner. KALW's general manager is Tina Pomantuan. The executive director of the Kepler's Literary Foundation is Gene Forstner. Events manager is Amber Clark. Indeep's founding producer is Gordon Whiting. Our closing music is by David Gans. I'm Angie Quero. Thanks for tuning in to Indeep. <laughs>